and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Arun Srinivasan from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia talking about prune belly syndrome. My name is Arun Srinivasan. I'm one of the uh, urology attendings uh, in uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Um, I've been um, given this opportunity uh, to give this lecture on prune belly syndrome. Um, this is weird times. I'm sitting behind a computer in my closed office uh, talking to myself. I'm hoping people are hearing me, but um, well, these are the weird days. So, um, so this is a lecture that I've constructed for about 35 minutes or so. Um, and it, I'm trying to hit all the highlights on uh, prune belly syndrome. Um, anytime anything is marked as red um, is something which I want uh, um, pretty much to make sure that people uh, get the message across. So those are the more key points uh, to make sure you take out of this lecture. So anytime anything red uh, comes around, just pay a little attention to that. Um, so I don't have any disclosures. So prune belly syndrome has um, uh, two other different names, Eagle Barrett syndrome or the Triad syndrome. The triad is associated with uh, prune belly syndrome, or essentially uh, three. One is GU tract anomalies, and that's a broad basket of things. And then uh, you have bilateral intra-abdominal testes, essentially non-palpable testes, and a deficiency of anterior abdominal wall musculature. So we're gonna to touch base on a little bit on each of these. Uh, so let's start a little on the basics, incidence, genetics, and embryology. Um, incidence is about 30 to 40,000 live births. Um, in the U.S., 95% of children are boys. Chromosomal abnormalities have not been have, have some been identified, but it's really the exception. Most of the times, prune belly is not part of a syndromic complex. Uh, potential etiologies: uh, there is variable theories. The most common of which, and most widely accepted, is the second one, which is the primary defect of a lateral plate mesoderm migration. This, this migration happens about six to eight weeks. It comes from lateral and comes out and meet in the midline. And if it doesn't, then the midline structures are not formed and the mesoderm doesn't migrate in. And then that also leads to other um, uh, problems um, in, in terms of abdominal wall musculature. Um, and there is some component of an intrinsic defect on the urinary tract itself, some pathological changes in the kidneys, in the ureters, in the bladders. So this is not just the lateral mesoderms, but it seems to be something more added on. Um, let's look at the clinical features of uh, prune belly syndrome, starting from the top down. So kidneys, uh, very dysplastic kidneys. Uh, so dysplasia is seen about 50% um, of children with uh, prune belly syndrome. But the most important part is it's a variable degree and laterality. One kidney may be affected more than the other. And within the kidney itself, there will be variable dysplasia that is seen. Um, so dysplasia is typically boxed in, in different types based on Potter's definition, which came about in 1964. Um, and essentially, type 2 and 4 essentially was what we see in congenital urological problems. And both these abnormalities are seen in prune belly syndrome children. The degree of dilation does not correlate with the degree of renal dysplasia or obstruction. This is an important point. The dilation doesn't mean there's going to be dysplasia with the kidney. Kidney function still could be normal. Haleseal preservation is a typical architecture that you see here. And what is really detrimental to these kidneys is infection. It's not obstruction. Although the urogenous dilation looks like they obstructed, they're hardly ever obstructed. So let's see some pictures. 
Um, this is the ureters coming down from the kidneys down to the ureters. Um, again, typically dilated, tortuous, and very redundant. Um, proximal ureters are typically less effective than distal ureters. And there seems to be a significant connective tissue abnormality, particularly in the distal ureters. You see a lot of replacement of smooth muscle fibers with basically connective tissues and fibrous tissue. VUR is seen in 75% of children. Again, an important point to note. Obstruction is rare. So this is an important point to stress. It's very rare to get urethral upper tract obstruction in children with Kuhn belly syndrome. I'm not saying it can never happen, but it's not common. Most of the stasis is where the problem comes from. The stasis is what increases the risk of infection. And the stasis is a result of a poor peristalsis for multitude of reasons. Uh, the dilated ureter does not allow coaptation of the ureter to happen for effective propulsion. Uh, there might be replacement of the smooth muscle with fibrous tissue as I talked about before. These are the reasons for poor peristalsis and then stasis. Coming down, the bladder. Uh, key points to consider this significantly uh, enlarged. Uh, patent urachus is seen in 25 to 30% of these patients, and there's a huge urachal diverticulum seen in the majority of these children. Uh, again, there is a lot of collagen, uh, uh, an increase in collagen and decrease in muscle fibers. Uh, most of these bladders have pretty much normal compliance, but the sensation is affected, contractility is affected, and those are the primary problems here. Um, so what, what really happens is the bladder does not contract as a unit and a part contracts more than the others because of the distribution of the muscular fibers. And essentially the urine shifts from one place to the other part of the bladder and into the urethral diverticulum. So along with it, they have some urethral resistance. Put all this together, you essentially have a problem where the bladder cannot empty itself well. And that is seen about 50% of children, which means 50% actually wart spontaneously with normal warding pressures. So it's a very variable picture as you will see with everything from dysplasia, urethral dilation, and to bladder function, it's a very variable uh, uh, syndrome. Now some images, um, uh, this is obviously VCUGs, you can see dilated posterior urethras, and, um, and this is really because of prostatic um, uh, hypoplasia, and there may be urethral abnormalities. The bladder necks typically, unlike valve bladders, look pretty smooth and then not elevated. They look pretty uh, normal. So looking at the prostate, the dilated urethra is secondary to prostatic hypoplasia. Now, the two ways you're in the prostate, uh, prostatic urethra could be dilated. One, because of prostatic hypoplasia, but some of these children also have urethral atresia distal to it, causing an obstruction. That could be a secondary. So there are two reasons why there could be a dilated posterior urethra. Um, obstructive lesions of the dilated distal posterior urethra can happen, it happens in about 20% of cases. And there is some atresia noted in the vas and the seminal vesicles. Majority of these children, uh, or a good proportion of these children will have eventually as adults, retrograde ejaculation because the bladder neck does not coapt as well as it should. Um, going on to the anterior urethra, anterior urethra can also have problems. Urethral atresia is the most common problem with urethral and with anterior urethra in prune belly syndrome children. Urethral atresia is incompatible with life unless there is another way for urinary efflux, and typically that's patent urethras. So if there's no patent urethras, most of the times so the pregnancy is lost, but if there is a patent urethras, then the child, the child and fetus can survive uh, since there is an efflux or egress for the um, urine. Uh, megaloureutra has also been uh, noted. In fact, this is the most common syndromic uh, complex where megaloureutra is seen. 
um, can have both uh, fusiform, which is uh, uh, a more a severe kind of urethra, or the scaphoid. Uh, what is the difference between the two? You, know, you see it here. Um, essentially, the fusiform um, is absence of the carpal spongiosum and the cavernosum. And this leads to the entire fat. This is pretty much there is no urethra and hence leads on to significant uh, problems with bladder emptying, which can eventually lead on to uh, renal dysplasia and um, uh, pulmonary hyperplasia, and it goes on in that route. So these are megalourethras are obstructive um, lesions, um, and, um, and this is essentially how they look, and they are associated with Kroon-Belly syndrome, not commonly, uh, but they, don't, they are seen in the syndrome. So clinical features in the testis, uh, most important of which is it, it lies inside the abdomen. It's pretty high, and most of them are significantly high, uh, closer to the lower pole of the kidneys. Um, although there are significantly high biopsy studies that have been done on these children has not shown to be, uh, and shown to have any difference in germ cell counts or AD stomatogonia or lytic cells. Um, and so function is, to the most part, is no different than intra-abdominal testis in a non prune belly syndrome child. Infertility is definitely used to be the norm in these children um, for multiple reasons, uh, fertility and ejaculatory function problems. But as science progresses, and now we have uh, retrieval techniques, this has significantly improved. And more recently, at least in the last decade or two, there has been significant uh, uh, presentations and publications about how these uh, men went on, children went on to become father children. Um, Clinical features, the abdominal wall, obviously the most noticeable of Prune-Belly syndrome uh, triads, um, is essentially uh, the absence of the anterior uh, abdominal uh, musculature leading onto a fine membrane. And this is characteristically uneven. There may be parts of the abdomen which are significantly well-developed, and there are parts that are not. Um, most severe areas have just uh, skin, a subcute fat, and a single fibrous membrane, and beyond which there's just peritoneum. Inferior and medial segments are more consistently um, affected. <clears throat> there are certain things, caveats to this. Um, although there is not much of membrane, and in going back and, and, and looking at this children, there is no uh, increased uh, report of uh, postoperative hernias um, or healing capacity in this fascist. Um, so that is something to be kept in mind. And it's also important when you're thinking about interventions on these children, particularly putting, putting uh, port placements for testicular um, uh, correction or any such issues, it is important to note that, that you're not placing a port in the weak section of the abdomen. So it's important topographically to study the abdomen before you place more ports. Um, extra, um, um, extra genital and extra GU anomalies are quite a few. Uh, cardiac, pulmonary, gastrointestinal, orthopedic. Um, so the most important of which are primarily pulmonary uh, driven. Uh, there are a few reasons for it because of pulmonary hypoplasia, which can be associated with severe prune belly syndrome and um, oligohydramnios. Uh, but there are also other things that come along. Because of the abdominal weakness, uh, the cough impulse is not as good. Uh, there is this, the diaphragmatic excursions is not as robust, and that leads on to basal or basal exelectasis. Um, there is an increased incidence of pneumomediastinum. There's also significant chest wall abnormalities, chest and pectus, um, escapatum, and peronatum, which again cause problems with, um, with ventilation and um, hence lead on to more pulmonary complications. Pulmonary events are the single biggest um, problem to this, uh, with these children. Um, orthopedic, again, is a significant uh, uh, contributor of uh, incremental needs, and so is cardiac.
So how do these children present? Um, these days, prenatal diagnosis and management is not uncommon, uh, not in the minor, milder degrees of prune belly syndrome children, but definitely in the significant ones where there is, um, let's say, erythrotresia, uh, then oligohedramnios, then those are things that are picked up um, in, in, the, in the antenatal period. And, and this is some of the images of uh, children. Uh, I'm not sure my cursor comes along in the screen, but um, I'll try to show this anyway. Um, so these are some images where you can see uh, significant dilation of the bladder and non-emptying of the bladder is one such thing. And here you can see this uracal diverticulum on one side, this is the bladder, and this is post, uh, uh, sorry, the other way around. This is the uracal diverticulum bladder, and this is the dilated posterior urethra on the other end. So these are the characteristic findings. Uh, resembles really posterior urethral valve, almost impossible to differentiate one from the other, or for megacystis megaureter syndromes. Um, so it, it, because of the variable presentation and because they're picked up late and because the prognosis is so variable, it is almost impossible to make a firm recommendation during pregnancy about how to manage them. So most of the times it's just monitoring that is done during the antenatal period. Um, and the degree of hydronephrosis, as we talked about before, does not correlate with postnatal renal function. So you really cannot make a, an argument to say that the kidney function is going to be poor. And dysplasia, again, is variable. So there is only one instance where really uh, prenatal intervention is being really indicated, and that's in the setting of um, urethral atresia. And um, definitely uh, a stent in that setting does make sense. And this is uh, uh, one such patient and um, shows some um, uh, after birth, obviously. Uh, there's a stent that going in through the urethra and coming out through the uh, patent uracus. This is a child with urethral atresia was managed um, uh, antenatally um, and um, essentially uh, postnatally with uh, Padua, P-A-D-U-A. We'll talk about more in a, in a few slides later. The spectrum of the disease, as we talked about, the spectrum is the biggest thing with our, about prune belly. Not all prune belly syndrome children are the same. So three major categories. Uh, you can guess what these are going to be. One is going to be really significant urethral atresia, poor, doesn't get completely dysplastic kidney and significant pulmonary hypoplasia, but the prognosis is pretty poor. On the other end, category three, where there are pretty much very minimal um, issues and hence will be just fine. And there is a huge group in the middle, which essentially makes category two. And this is essentially what these three and two slides are going to show. Category one is really most of the times um, not much you can do as a urologist um, in terms of salvaging kidney function. Um, the category two is the full spectrum where you get it, but there's the, mid, mid, the big middle group where this, everything could be um, uh, variable and hence you have to tailor your treatment plan. And category three, which again, the urologist may not have to do much there um, other than testicular and abdominal procedures, essentially because the urinary tract is stable. So let's go to the other spectrums that are outside of this category of severity, which is the incomplete or the pseudoprune, which is basically may lack some of the abdominal features, but has the uropathy and the UDT. That doesn't mean they are protected from renal dysplasia. They still can have renal dysplasia and consequential renal failure. Uh, female uh, prune bellies, um, taking time quickly. Um, female prune belly is also another entity, which again is variable presentation, but typically has been found in much severe disease and have a significant number of co coexisting anorectal malformations and uh, increased neonatal mortality. So, how do you evaluate children when these are presented? And this is a broad category, again, going with our uh, severity categories, one, two, and three. 
Uh, the two is pretty much the bulk of children that we need. Uh, category three, yes, you do an ultrasound, but if there's no significant other abnormalities, then there may not be a much of reasons to intervene um, uh, in this group of children. So there's been a controversy with category two about early intervention and reconstruction versus letting the story unfold and see what happens. And there used to be a lot of papers before 1960s, 70s, that pretty much talked about early surgical reconstruction. Uh, but in more recent years, the, ma the mandate has been to really let these children uh, declare themselves one way or the other and then go with that and tailor the treatment to individual child rather than have a common philosophy. The goal in these children uh, is to really tailor treatment to individual needs. So um, these patients, um, and when you go back, there are studies that compare one versus the other, but they are very poor and that they don't have long-term follow-up. They have small number of patients in their study. So it's really not something that you're handling. Uh, so key is multidisciplinary evaluation. Nephrologists, um, uh, pulmonologists, your neonatologists are going to be part of your team. Um, and obviously assessing kidney function is going to be the first critical and pulmonary function is going to be the second critical step that you do once these children are born. So VCUG should be tailored to children who we think might benefit from it. In other words, it should not be just done just because of uh, the, uh, the presence of urethral dilation. Uh, but at the same time, if there is evidence of obstruction, urethral obstruction, or, the, or bladder overflow obstruction, or significant renal dysplasia, or kidney, uh, um, you know, uh, CKDs, uh, then it makes sense to do a VCUG. And VCUG, in this instance, can introduce the risk of urinary tract infection, and hence has to be taken very seriously. One instance where you start antibiotic prophylaxis and then uh, do the VCUG and, uh, and um, essentially uh, deal it in a very careful part of matter. Circumcision is also critical um, and definitely makes sense to be part of in this high-risk children for UTI. So th this is one of my patient's pictures was uh, antenatally had intervened, had a, um, a stent placed um, a vesicular amniotic shunt and um, this is the initial uh, pictures that you can see this uh, urethral atresia right about this level and then you can see later pictures with bladder filling right at that level. So these, uh, this is the uh, ultrasound images so that are showing renal dysplasia and cystic dysplasia um, in these children. Now, um, this child basically underwent a parallel procedure, a sequential dilation of the urethra, and eventually we have to, um, um, eventually we have to create a vesicostomy to divert urine flow. These are more images showing some reflux, these high-grade refluxers, and 75% uh, of them do have it. So this is classic uh, picture of a megalourethra. Uh, that's the, uh, that's the um, appearance of how a phallus looks in a child like this. And this is the picture where you can see a, a typical um, deficiency of the, uh, the ventral wall because of the absence of corpus spongiosum. And this is essentially how it looks. So vesicostomy, um, it's critical in um, uh, obstructing these bladders and decreasing the risk of urinary tract infection. Uh, and um, urethral atresia or urethral hyperplasia, megalourethra, or all instances where you would think about doing this. Um, so it's key factors in vesicostomy is to use the dome of the bladder, and some people do take off that urethral diverticulum while they're doing this. You don't really have to. You can make that as part of your uh, vesicostomy, but it's key. There are two key things. One, use the dome of the bladder to create to prevent what you see here, which is really a, uh, uh, it's like a, a, a prolapse, a vesicostomy prolapse. A matter prolapse, 
Um, and the, the stoma needs to be widened up because otherwise stenosis is very common because of the low intra-abdominal pressures. So surgical management, uh, three components. Uh, I'm just going to go through this briefly. Uh, urethra, bladder, ureter, and abdominal wall reconstruction and arteriopexis. So what do we do for the bladder? Uh, urinary tracts, uh, as we talked about, reconstruction for the upper tract. Hardly ever these systems are obstructed. So the key is to improve drainage. And we need to improve drainage only if there is a recurrent risk of infection. So multiple UTIs happening in the absence, uh, in the presence of uh, prophylactic antibodies or indications to, uh, indications to do something about it, um, to upper tract. Of course, if there is a, a definitive evidence of obstruction, uh, although less likely can happen, and if there is one, then it makes sense to then again intervene. Um, cutaneous vesicostomy, we already talked about. Um, reduction cystoplasty, um, I'm not really sure these are uh, really uh, done these days. They are part of uh, historical armamentarium that people have utilized. Uh, but what people really use these days is essentially tools to empty the bladder if the problem is bladder emptying. Uh, early than the younger children typically go for vesicostomy um, or a combination of vesicostomy or, or, or a CIC as a tool to go in. And as they get older, we talk and start thinking about catheterizable channels. Internal urethrotomy, again, a historical thing that is not done recently in, uh, in, in recent years. Uh, again, you don't see a discrete obstruction that you can do a urethrotomy. So it's really a historical perspective. Uh, surgical management of the urethra. This is, this is really in the anterior urethral reconstruction. Uh, there are two ways. Well, urethral atresia or hypoplasia can be managed with a palua, which is a sequential dilation of the anterior urethra, which can improve the size of the urethra. So that's one option. And the second option would be to, obviously, in the setting of a megalourethra, is to reconstruct the urethra. Uh, surgical management of the ureter, as we talked about, is controversial and the indications are strictly either upper tract obstruction or recurrent urinary tract infection. And the goal of remodeling is to reduce stasis and decrease risk of UTI. So essentially what you do is to take away the redundancy, uh, the, um, the dilation, taper it, and do a um, non-reflexing reimplant into the bladder. Uh, surgical management of the testis is fairly well defined. Uh, it's a transabdominal arcuopexy, however you do it, open or uh, laparoscopic, uh, typically these days done by laparoscopic. Poor placement challenges, have so we talked about this? The bladder is pretty broad, so this is one instance where you really want to empty the bladder before you put up initial pour. And then what I tend to do is to assess any weak links in the abdominal wall, and it's essentially put your next ports in where your abdominal wall is pretty uh, strong. It's not um, uh, weak or uh, redundant. So it's important to get your pneumo and I'll have a picture later on to show how the, that helps. And when, when you see that redundant area, make sure you don't put your port in that area. Um, again, most of these children do not need a Fowler-Stevens arcuopexy. Uh, they are high, but they can be brought down in one stage uh, with intact vessels. But obviously there are kids who are an exception. And two-stage arcuopexy has, not, has been shown as effective as children without Kumbhali syndrome. How do you manage the abdominal wall? Surgical management of the abdominal wall. Uh, these are the earliest procedures, abdominal wall reconstruction. Randolph is where you put the curtains down, uh, essentially. Uh, the problem with that is the superior, um, the uh, uh, epigastric artery that you invariably divide in this kind of procedures. Uh, and hence, uh, not done very commonly these days. Uh, the early is one where you pull the curtains on the side, uh, uh, but what's more commonly done 
is um, uh, is Montfort technique, which is essentially you make an um, ellipsoid in incision, but also have a smaller ellipsoid to retain the uh, belly button, and then essentially you dissect along the sides on either side, and uh, you create flaps, and um, you essentially take a strip, and I'll show you some pictures of this later, where you strip of the middle pedicle of the abdominal wall along with the belly button in the middle, and then you cut on either side of this and then undermine it. So, so rest over pants on either side, and that decreases the, the fascial uh, excess of redundancy. And then you can bring the skin down and, um, and cut the excess off and then put it back together. And this is, uh, uh, this is um, Dr. Smith, um, who um, who's my mentor in Atlanta, and Dr. Kirsch. Uh, we wrote this uh, work uh, looking at some modifications on this classic Montfort uh, abdominal plastic. Uh, so here you can see these are some of the techniques that are important to uh, notice. You see how there is bulging with the pneumoperitoneum here. And this is one place where I would not put my cord in if I'm doing my orthopexy. But in terms of the abdominal plastic, it also tells you where there is excess redundancy or significant weakness in the abdominal wall. Uh, remember, this is not a, a, a uniform weakness. There are parts that are stronger and parts that are not and most of them are not symmetric. So it is important to fine tune these operations, figure out where exactly the excess weakness is. And the modifications that we talked about, uh, Dr. Smith and Dr. Kirsch talked about are basically these. Uh, go with the midline incision so that we're not pre-committing to a, a skin defect when you go this way. And then essentially you create the same flap in the middle, the middle pedicle with the belly button. Uh, the, the belly button in these children are higher than normal. Um, uh, typically, they are, it should be at the junction of the upper two-third and the lower third, and these kids, it's much higher. So uh, we do a little Heineke methods to bring that down. And then it also provides the opportunity for vertical redundancy, not just horizontal redundancy, but vertical redundancy to be taken care of, and then the best over pants approach to finish uh, the rest of the procedure. So these are some, I, I believe, are significant modifications that improve their outcomes and, um, and um, the well, definitely the aesthetic look of it. So Dennis technique is definitely one that's been introduced and that, that's um, added on, uh, particularly it, it's talked about in the uh, most uh, the current version of Campbell. So I thought it was important to include this for this lecture. Um, I have not done this or seen it done, but um, essentially it, it's a variation of uh, uh, West over pants technique, but it, they take a flap from the, there's a one larger side and there's um, there is a one um, um, the relatively shorter side, and then there is the, tie, the fusion of which makes it uh, have a more uniform um, uh, distribution of strength. And, and it, it definitely, uh, the final picture uh, looks great. So predicting renal function in these children, and I'm coming down to uh, trying to close up soon so that we have some time for questions. Um, so predicting renal function, um, native creatinine less than 0.7, much like uh, in posterior erythral valve uh, literature, has been shown to predict some. 30% uh, with impaired renal function will end up with end-stage renal disease. Uh, the need for close follow-up and prompt treatment of UTIs, as we talked about, UTIs is the key determinant of how quickly renal function deteriorates. Transplant into a prone bladder is fine as long as it's a bladder emptying strategy. What do I mean by that? That, that is either the child is voiding well with proven emptying or the child has a catheterization channel or a catheterization process that's already established. So quality of life, uh, broader aspects in, in, in these children, 
profoundly affects health-related quality of life. Uh, the children are, are found to have lower physical, emotional, social, uh, and school functioning scores uh, compared to peers, peer-to-peer uh, -peer interaction, um, and everything seems to be a little bit compromised in these children. Uh, growth and musculoskeletal development uh, seems to be have a normal growth in these children, really. Uh, there's really no restriction to activities, and some may need corsets or splints, particularly for the pectus, and if they have coexisting spinal scoliosis, hyphoscoliosis, may need corsets or splints. Um, and physical therapy and exercise, particularly swimming, is important for long-term abdominal wall health. Uh, so abdominal wall health is important for two things, normal bowel function um, and uh, normal um, you know, coughing responses. And those are important things and, and definitely swimming in particular uh, helps in this regard. So to summarize, uh, prune belly syndrome is not one disease. It's a spectrum of a problem and it's important to categorize each one of your patients into this, uh, where they lie and tailor the treatment based on that. Uh, prognosis is tied to a degree of renal insufficiency. Initial therapy is obviously stabilization and key for long-term is to prevent UTIs. Cannot stress this point enough. And treatment is tailored to the individual patient. So th these are not questions for you guys to ask. I just want to run it by some uh, few um, examples um, of um, um, in-service questions or uh, eventual board questions. So urethral dysfunction, I'm going to uh, ask and answer myself just to take you through this. Urethral dysfunction in uh, PBS is related to all of the following. Um, and essentially, uh, more severe proximal urethral dysfunction is not the case. Normally, the proximal ureters are spared. And, and the, the, common, the reason for urethral dilation is the rest. There's, no, there's not a good coaptation, luminal coaptation, reduced smooth muscle, replacement with fibrous tissue, and abnormal myofibrils. So these are all reasons for uh, poor uh, urethral uh, propagation of urine. The most appropriate indication uh, for intervention in suspected PBS is, as we talked about, it's urethral atresia and worsening oligo. It's pretty much the only reason. Uh, prolapse of a vesicostomy is best avoided by uh, is placing the stoma in the bladder dome because that has support to it, and so it doesn't allow the posterior wall to come through it. It's supposed to posterior wall. Um, so this is a little longest question. I'm, I'm going to um, read it aloud. One-year-old boy with PBS has chronic renal insufficiency, he undergoes abdominal plasty, bilateral arteriopexy, develops oliguria postoperatively. And, and this is important one point to note that when you decrease this abdomen, you have to be concerned, uh, conscious about a possible abdominal compartment syndrome developing in these children. So that is something it's important to talk about, but that's not context to this question, but that's something which you need to think about. Serum electrolytes reveal elevated BUN, creatinine, metabolic acidosis, and hyperkalemia. So when the process of bringing down and bringing down the potassium and creating the acidosis, the treatment is given, and then abdominal cramping and muscle spasms. This is basically uh, a basic medicine question, which is basically when you treat acidosis, uh, you end up with hypercalcemia because of driving calcium inside the cells, and you have to watch out and watch for the ionized calcium and treat it. Again, a board question. The life-threatening condition associated with abnormality, I'm sure you guys see it, megalourethra, and megalourethra means bladder outlet obstruction. Bladder outlet obstructions mean oligohydramnios, and that means pulmonary hypoplasia. So that's the answer for this. So which of the following statements regarding the prognosis of uh, patients with PBS is false? And the answer is the male pseudoprone is protected from renal failure. A pseudoprone or an incomplete pruned belly syndrome child is no different from a pruned belly syndrome child in terms of urinary uh, tract 
um, outcomes and prognosis. So it's key to remember that. Um, I think this is my last question. Considering the prognosis of untreated patients with Crohn belly syndrome, which statement is false? Um, and the answer is testes may descend spontaneously before puberty. Now, it's important to note, there are some things as time goes by in these children, they do improve spontaneously. Abdominal wall contour might improve spontaneously. The urinary tract dilation might improve spontaneously. Dysplasia, is, it's not, it's not kind of, you wouldn't call it improving, but it, doesn't, it may not get worse and may have improved kidney function as they grow over. But the one thing that does not spontaneously improve is um, a testis and obviously needs a surgical procedure. So that's the end of my lecture. And um, I think I have Karen, one of our residents, um, who's uh, joining us now. And, um, and if you have any questions, uh, we, can, uh, we can try to answer those. Thanks, Dr. Srinivasan. Uh, just a couple questions uh, were posted in the chat here. Um, uh, one is just uh, in, re in reference to VCUGs in the workup of these patients. Um, uh, the question specifically, uh, why is VCUG needed uh, since 75% of these patients will have um, VUR? So it's obviously, um, if, if there is no VUR, the prognosis is different and the antibiotic prophylaxis is an issue. And you don't want, it's something that you may need to fix if there's a recurrent UTIs. Now, you might argue you would rather do the, um, the VCUG after UTIs happen and then establish the reason. But the traditional practice has been to, well, this is one situation where you have to be prudent about VCUG, not just to establish a diagnosis. As I said, a good proportion of these kids and children have VCUG, have um, uh, reflux. So the goal of the VCUG is not to just do it and hence routinely is not done. It's only done if it's going to change management. And what do I mean by that? There is recurrent UTIs, or we think there is significant, there's a possibility of obstruction of the UVJ, or if there is a possibility of worsening dilation. These are contexts where, uh, or there is bladder outlet obstruction, and you're trying to rule out a urethral abnormality. Those are the instances where you really do a VCUG in this children, not really to establish whether they have reflux or not. Thank you. Um, there's a question uh, in regards to trocar site placement. Um, uh, so it says, uh, can you please elaborate more on trocar site insertion um, when treating the non-palpable testis? So essentially, ports are essentially placed one in the, uh, well, this is the way I do it, and there are different ways to do it. Um, so I place a port initially in the belly button, and then essentially uh, one on either side of the anterior axillary line. Uh, and you can screw it up or down depending on wh what test is and where the test is. Now, in a, in, a, in a child with prune belly syndrome, there are a few things to note. The bladder is so broad-based, sometimes it goes even beyond the medial umbilical. You can see it going well beyond it and then coming back in. So you don't want, you don't want to not notice that and then place your reports carefully. So that's one thing that you have to be careful about. And, and second thing is about abdominal wall weaknesses. There are certain places Whereas literally there's nothing other than a thin membrane and you don't want that to be uh, where you place your probe. So it is, it's prudent to look for those really weak areas and try to see if you can avoid them uh, putting ports through those areas. And again, this might be a bit of an overkill, but this is my practice. I typically close these children with, with permanent sutures. So it's either ethobond or proline that I close them with. Again, for the same reason, I worry about hernia, although there's not much noted it's something that I, I, I essentially don't want to deal with. So as a known, with known weakness of the abdominal wall, I would rather play it safe. So those are the things of what I meant when I said 
uh, trocar placement should be judicious and in a, in a thought about fashion. Yeah, and then uh, just along those lines as well, the uh, last question, um, what is the incidence of ventral hernia after abdominoplasty and how is it most often managed? So it is not common at all. It is not common at all uh, in terms of uh, um, uh, having, uh, because now it's a re, uh, if you think about it, there is uh, superimposing layers of fascia one over the other, and it's not typically seen to be the case. I've seen one instance where there was a hernia between the two layers, where the, the western pan, where the two overlapping layers, there was a hernia in between those layers, and that was repaired laparoscopically, but there's no true ventral hernias. But if there are ventral hernias, then the only thing would be to, at this point, with the weakened fascia, my, my thought process would be to use something like a, a mesh or an alternative like an allodome to, to create that extra strength that a fascia needs for uh, preventing a recurrence of uh, another ventral hernia. So that would be my strategy. I have not done it, thankfully, uh, and I haven't had one, but if it happens, that's probably in the line where I would think Great, thanks. Dr. Definitely get a general surgery person to help you with that as well um, as a ventral hernia. And that's all the questions we have. All right, very good. Well, thanks a lot for the opportunity and thanks for everyone who signed in. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.